I've had a, a couple of people ask me, uh, well, how many people got saved? And I, I want to explain, the answer to the question is nobody. Um, but I want to explain that. When we went to Texas uh, three years ago, we went and Kika had been there for uh, two or three years. There had been multiple teams that had come through that had shared the gospel. Uh, everyone that we were able to lead to Christ was really low-hanging fruit. They had heard the story. They, 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 the Holy Spirit had been convicting them. One of the people that got saved when we were in Dallas was the pastor of the church's father. He had been hearing the gospel, hearing the gospel. What we were doing on this trip is what missiologically is referred to as zero to one. Uh, the, the missionary that we were working with, um, Alex, had literally moved there last month. These people had never been exposed to the gospel before. He didn't have relationships with these people. So we were the very first people, what they're talking about, where we were cold calling. We're knocking on doors. These kids got the privilege to do something that a ton of preachers have never gotten to do, which is they got to look at somebody for the first time ever and tell them the story. Amen. They'd never heard it before. They say, you ask somebody, if they, do you know Jesus? And the person would go, well, there's, there's Jesus down three apartments down. I know him. Uh, but I don't know who you're talking about. And so what we, we knowing that that was going to be the situation, we prepared, and what these kids did a fantastic job of doing is a program called Creation to Christ. If you go up to somebody who's never heard of Jesus and doesn't understand the concept of sin and say, hey, we got good news for you, first they got to hear the bad news. And so Brandon Bishop prepared for and planned and had a five-minute lesson that he taught on the law so that we know what the bad news is. And some of the kids told the story of Noah. And we started at creation, and we walked with these kids through the entire arc of the redemptive story in the Old Testament, all the way up to the birth and death of Jesus. So this was the first time these folks had ever heard that stuff. Paul says, some come to water, some plant, but all reap the benefits of the harvest. So we shared with a, a man who, as we shared the gospel with him, he kept his big hang-up was, what about my family? See, I can't get saved if my family doesn't get saved too. That's the exact same thing that Garrett heard. Well, I can tell you because I've been there. Those people are going to get saved. Soon, those people are going to get saved. The Holy Spirit's working on them. The Holy Spirit's convicting them. I guarantee you that both of those families, that they haven't slept. They've been going to bed at night thinking, is this hell real? Am I destined to go there if I don't call on the name of Jesus? And when they get saved, then their family will follow. But first, they have to step out. So these kids were able to see the biblical principle where Jesus said, which is so confusing to us in a Western culture, what did Jesus mean when he said, don't think that I came to bring peace. I came to bring a sword to turn father against son, mother against daughter. For whoever denies me before man, I will deny before the father. We read that and like, that is crazy talk. And yet, in reality, in most of the world, that's what they're experiencing. If I call on the name of the Lord to get saved, then all my family who think that namaste is the way to God are going to disown me and they're going to hate me. And so these kids got that privilege. Now, why we keep saying thank you to you is things like the chili cook-off, 
the Christmas thing that the choir did, all of that stuff was able to raise money so that our youth, when we got on that bus, all they ended up having to pay was $19 a person. And that was because of God using you and your generosity being able to go with them. So if you take Paul's principle, there are some that water, there are some that sow, there are some that work the ground. Your gifts, your generosity, your helping, the choir's hard work for that, that dinner theater, all of those things, you get to participate in the reward when those people get saved. That's the way God planned for His church to work. We're all working together. There are some of you that the idea of standing in front of a group of people and and walking through the law horrifies you. You get the the heebie-jeebies just thinking about it. But you worked to set up tables for the dinner theater, and God used you. Now... What the, the kind of the rhythm that we as a church have taken for the last few years is every other year we do an, a, a North American trip. We went to Dallas, and then last year we went to Haiti. Then this, last, this year we went to Cincinnati. Next year, the plan is we're going to go to the Philippines. Now, when I say that, some people say, well, how much is that going to cost? That's going to be like $3,000. That's going to be expensive. Those flights are going to be crazy. Here's the thing. I have never in my life, and I've been working around church nine months before I was born, I have never seen someone say, I feel like God's calling me to go do something that God didn't provide that money. Money is never the problem. God will provide. So if And this particular trip is going to be a construction trip. So if you are somebody that can plumb, if you're somebody that knows how to pull some wire... If you know somebody, if you're somebody that knows how to pick up two blocks and walk them over here and set them down in front of somebody who can stack them, if you're somebody that can do that, then God can use you. God wants to use you. This isn't just going to be a youth trip. Anybody in this sanctuary that wants to go to the Philippines, you need to start thinking now, preparing now. We're going to go and work and we're going to plant some seed. Now, some people ask me the question. They ask the question as we go to Cincinnati. Hey, ain't there lost people around here? Why do we need to load everybody up on a bus and take them off somewhere? Let me answer that question from the Bible. Jesus, in the book of Acts, in telling his disciples what it would look like, what the Great Commission would look like, said, And you will be my disciples, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Now, that ain't me talking. That's Jesus saying. Now, if you break that down and look at that, Jerusalem is right here in Glencoe, in Etowah County. That's our Jerusalem. We are to be disciples here. Jesus still uses the verb to go because we all go every day. That is, you go to Goodyear, as you go to the fire hall, as you go to your job every day, you're supposed to be making disciples. That ain't my job. That's your job to make disciples as you go, right here in Jerusalem. This is our Jerusalem. Our Judea is our country. We are to make sure that the gospel is being going forth. Do you know how to fix the political issues that are going on in America right now? It ain't Fox News. And let me go even further. It's never 
going to be the solution to our country is going to be political. I don't care who's in the White House. I heard, and I've quoted him before, Brother Bill said, the problem ain't in the White House. The problem ain't in the courthouse. The problem with this country is in the church house. Because we ain't acting like Christians is the reason why all these other problems are going on. So if we want to see our country turn back to God, it's going to come because we've got the guts to talk about Jesus out there. So we're to take the gospel to our Jerusalem We're to take the gospel to our Judea. We're to take the gospel to our Samaria. Now, Samaria was a place that was just right down the road. In fact, there were times when Jesus was traveling around in the countryside. The Bible would say, and he had to go through Samaria. Because that's the way the road went. Now, I know that there are places just like they had there. Samaria was some place that was close. They had a different language. They had a different culture. And those Jews did not feel comfortable in Samaria. Everybody in this room knows where Samaria is. You don't drive down East Broad after dark. You go down Megan, even though there's a lot more traffic. Can we be real here for a minute? Youth, hallelujah! Thank you. We learned a new way to praise there. We're supposed to be our disciples in places that we don't feel comfortable being. We're supposed to be taking the gospel. Because let me tell you something. If I walk into East Gadsden on my own and start telling people about Jesus, it looks like I'm saying that Jesus is a white guy. If I go with an African-American brother or sister in Christ, what it says is the gospel is more powerful than race. Because I should have more in common with a black person who's in Christ than I do with a heathen who lives next door to me. So we take the gospel to our Samaria. And then finally, we are to be disciples to the uttermost, to the highways and byways. And let me tell you what I've learned, that as I take the gospel to those far-flung places, what it does is set me on fire to share the gospel right here in Glencoe. I, since I've been back, have gotten texts from people who are Cultural Christians, what were you doing in Cincinnati? I've been seeing your Facebook stuff. I can be honest and say I was up there telling people about Jesus. That opens doors for me to make much of Jesus right here in Glencoe. So there's a benefit there. These kids, some of them who've never shared their faith before, have now had to share their faith through a translator, and it will have an impact on them sharing their faith at the locker. And so it has that benefit. So I just wanted to share with you, I wanted to thank you, I wanted to share with you what, what we did, uh, and there was some mention of some, uh, some healing that God used us that we didn't plan on doing. One of the things that had happened was, is you have all these Bhutanese and Nepali that moved into an apartment complex in a pretty rough neighborhood of town. And the African American community did not like it. And so when we showed up and started uh, giving teddy bears to these Nephilim kids and, and loving on them, there was some animosity. We had some things being said uh, as we walked around. We were told in a somewhat forceful language to get out of that apartment complex. It wasn't ours, yada, yada, yada. And the first day that we were there, I started going up to groups of people and just saying, is there something that I can pray for you for? And every time they would say, that person would say, yeah, can you pray for my aunt so-and-so? Or can you pray for this, pray for that? They gave, which started smoothing the waters over a little bit. The second day we were there, um, the, the, the band, um, 
were, uh, they were standing around and they were practicing their songs that they were going to sing. And they were singing VBS songs. They were singing, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. That, that kind of song. The B-I-B-L-E. Y'all know these songs that I'm talking about, right? So they're, they're, they're practicing those songs. And this uh, lady came up to me and said, what are y'all doing? And I said, well, we're doing backyard Bible clubs. And she said, well, nobody asked me and this is my backyard. And I said, I'm so sorry, but this was really the only place that we could do it because it was open, and if this is a problem, no, it ain't a problem, but I, you should have come talk to me. You're right, ma'am, yes, ma'am, we should have. And so she sat there, and she just happened to be, because God is pretty sovereign, she just happened to be sitting right by where they were practicing. And about five or six minutes later, I looked over to see if she was still angry, and I saw tears running down her eyes. And I kind of sidled over by her and said, uh, yeah, we, God blessed us with a pretty good band. She said, oh, those songs just remind me when I was a little girl, my grandmother would took me, taken me to church. I hadn't been to church since I was a little girl. And I just remember those songs. And God used that music to soften her heart so that I was able to several times the rest of the time talk with her about Jesus and how, hey, if you grew up in the church, honey, come home. Run to Jesus. And that... God used our presence to heal that festering problem there because by the time we left, I had people who before had been saying, get the blankety-blank out of here, you're not wanted here, coming up to me and going, hey, thank you guys for what y'all did. These kids needed that. And so that was your youth that God used in an amazing way. So thank you. Guys who went, give the church a big hand. <laughs> Hallelujah! <laughs> All right, let's go to 1 Samuel. Let's see what God's Word has to say for us. In 1 Samuel 27 is where we find ourselves this morning. If you remember last week, we were in 1 Samuel 26, and we heard uh, the story of, of what David was doing. And, and um, Wait, no, we were at 1 Samuel 25, and this week we're in 1 Samuel 26. You know what? It's been a long week. You try to run around with a bunch of teenagers for a week. Um, last week, we, read, we heard the story of David and Abigail and how God, had, God showed David that he is the one that can exact vengeance. Let God take care of things. And God was able to turn those burnt fields to green. And that God was able to use that situation that was such a, a bad situation where Nabal, whose name literally means fool, was ready to, David was ready to kill him and God turned his heart and God took care of the problem. The very next story we have brings us to a problem with the Ziphites. Now last year we talked about these Ziphites uh, and they are actually... Guys who are Jews, who are from the tribe of Judah, um, David had actually worked to defend them, but they had gone to Saul and said, hey, here's where David is. Well, the Ziphites went back to Saul. The, the text tells us that the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakilah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? Now, so these Ziphites are like that kid in school. It just tattles on everybody. It's like, really? you got to go run into Saul about this? Um, so we know in 1 Samuel 23, they did the same thing. Then the Ziphites in 1 Samuel 23, 19, went up to Saul at Gibeah saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horesh on the hill of Hakilah, which is south of Jeshimon? 
Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire. So they had gone and tattled to Saul before, and they went again. And we know that this was heartbreaking to David because the psalm that he wrote, Psalm 54, at this time. Saul comes up and starts hunting David again, and David is crushed because people who should have been supporting him, people from his own tribe, people who should have his back, who he had given time and energy and effort and work to, to protect, that those very people turned on him. And you know, sometimes that will happen in life. People who you serve, people who you love, people who do things will hurt you. I can even go so far as to say that if you're around any human being long enough, they're going to disappoint you. We are broken. We are fallen. And the Ziphites tattled, tattled, tattled on David. And here came Saul. Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph. Those Ziphites had told on him, so there's where he went. And he had 3,000 guys. And we know that this wounded David because in Psalm 54, this is what David wrote. Oh God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. Oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. Think about what David is saying there. Now, when it's in pretty language like this, sometimes we miss what David is praying. David is hurting. David is angry. Let me put this language in the language that we use today. David is saying to God, Listen to me! Why are you ignoring me, God? Give ear to my prayer means, Listen! Why aren't you listening to me? God, the very people that are my family, they're from Judah, and they're running against me? Oftentimes, it's Christians who will hurt you more than anybody else. I've got some scars on the back of my head that if you look real close, say Thompson Chain. And on this side, a few that say Schofield, because I've been bapped in the back of the head with a Bible a few times. And David is crying out to God because he's being hurt by the very people who should be open to him. And that gladdens my heart because I've been there. And even in those times, we know that God is who we turn to. We so little understand prayer. I, when I was teaching prayer on Wednesday night, I, I said, it's always amazed me, because I've always pretty much been in the South uh, growing up, that you would have somebody who, uh, you know, if you just talk to them out in the parking lot, they'd sound like they're from Gadsden, Alabama, because they're from Gadsden, Alabama. And I reckon we're going to go over there. <laughs> and they, they would use mom and them as, as a, a single word. that We all know what that means. I got tickled because I had somebody in Ohio ask me, what does it mean to reckon? Because I reckon we're going, and I'm like, ah, yeah, I don't know. You just, you, you just roll with it, right? Um, and that's the way that they talk. And then when they're asked to pray, they get behind the pulpit and they go, our father. They turn into an Elizabethan English guy. And you're like, where did that come from? 
Oh, our Father. Like, who is that? Is he channeling Shakespeare? What is going on here? Because we think that's how we've got to pray. And in reality, prayer is talking to God. And if you're angry, be angry with God. He's not going to be in heaven going, oh. He, let me tell you a little secret. He knows how you feel. He already knows that you're angry. He already knows that you're hurt. And if you open that up to God, if you say, God, I don't like this. Why are you doing this to me? If you take what you're feeling, what you, where you really are to God, He's the only one that can do something about it. So why would we try to fake God out by go, acting like we're in a good mood when we're not? David in Psalm 54, in the middle of this horrible situation where his people of his own tribe are tattling on him, he prays, Oh God, save me! Hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. Strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Selah. If you're ever reading the Psalms, don't skip the Selahs. Those mean stop, think about what I just said. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a free will offering, I will sacrifice to you. Oh, I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. God can do something about it. So take your trouble to him. So David arose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. So David comes to the place where Saul lay. He has a conversation with people. Hey, you want to go? No, you want to go? And so David goes, him and Ahimelech the Hittite and Joab's brother Abishah uh, go up and, and to where Saul is. Abishah decides to go on with him. They go up and God had put a deep sleep on the army of Saul and Saul so that David and Abishah are able to walk right up to where he is. There, Saul's laying there snoring. Here's David and Abishah. What does Abishah say? Dude, this war is over. Grab his spear, run him through like the dog he is. Let's go. David says, No. Abishai, Abishai said, God's given you your enemy in your hand. And David said, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Now, David is looking to Exodus twenty-two twenty-eight, where it says specifically, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of his people. Now, here David was in a situation where every circumstance possible suggested that what he needed to do was run Saul through. David's got his friend with him who loves him enough to where he has snuck up into the camp of the enemy and his friend is saying, do it dude, come on, let's do this. Let's end this thing. David is exhausted. 
He's exhausted mentally. He's exhausted spiritually. He's exhausted physically. And here is the opportunity for this to be over. It looks like God's opened the door. Everything in David would have said, kill him, except one thing, and it's what the Bible says. And that is a massive lesson for us. There are times when the culture, when other Christians, when the circumstances seem to be pointing to one door, one avenue, but the clear dictates of God's Word says something else. And we need to learn to be a people that do what God's Word tells us to do. That when there's a question, this is where we go, not here. So many people say, the Lord led me, which is church speak for I really, really want. No offense. When what we need to be doing is saying, God said. And obeying it, whether we want to or not. David clearly felt the Lord leading him to strike down Saul. And yet he knew that the Bible said, that's not the way you do things. We need to be a people who know what this book says and then obey it. No matter what we feel, no matter what we think, we have a sure word from God that we need to obey. Even when it's not convenient or it's not what we think should happen. I'm reminded of a story uh, that is written in, by Corey Ten Boom. She tells the story of the fact that, uh, those of you who don't know the story of Corey Ten Boom, I would strongly recommend reading her works. She and her family in uh, the Dutch country uh, hid Jewish families during the Holocaust. And they had in their kitchen uh, a trap door uh, that had been a potato cellar, and they had converted that tater cellar and made it to where they could keep people down there, and they had Jewish families that were in that cellar. And the family had actually talked about, if the Nazis come in, kick the door in, and they ask if we have any families, you need to lie. And Corey Tim Boom had said, she was a little girl of 12 years old, she said, I can't. The Bible tells me not to bear false witness. I can't lie. Her father tried to convince her. He said, honey, you've got to, you, you can't. I mean, this is, they'll kill him. And so sure enough, because uh, just as sure as, as day followed night, this was going to happen. The door got kicked in one day. Some neighbor had told on them. The Nazis come pouring into their kitchen. And, and as this Gestapo captain walks in, he sees Corey Tim Boom there. She's crying. He looks at her and says, are there any Jews in this house? And she says, yes. And he says, good, we're getting somewhere. Where are they at? And she says, they're in the kitchen right underneath us. And he looked at her, slapped her and said, don't lie to me, child, and marches out. God doesn't need our help he needs their obedience. And so often, where we mess up is when we try to help God, when we try to hook Him up. Trust that God's Word is a sure foundation that we can follow. Trust that God's Word knows what it says to do. That's why when somebody comes to me and says, you know what, I feel the Lord telling me it's okay to leave my wife. <laughs> 
I'd say, no, it's not. Do what you want to do. Clearly, you're going to, but don't blame it on God because he's made what, the sanctity of marriage very clear. But I love her. No, you don't. The Bible makes really clear what the definition of love is. And that ain't it. And so we look to God's word as we do our lives. This is our God, and David follows that. But David also wanted to make sure that Saul knew what was going on. And so he took the spear that was at Saul's head and his water bottle and went away. And nobody saw it because they didn't wake up. And so David went over to the other side and stood afar off at the top of the hill. And David called and said to Abner, who was Saul's guard, Hey, who's supposed to be watching the king? Now here David gets a little smart alecky, which makes me really like David. Well, if you were supposed to be watching the king, you missed something as he holds up the spear and the water bottle. Because I got these from somewhere. Guess where, Abner? You weren't doing your job. Ha, ha, ha. In fact, there's, there's several little smart-alecky turns of phrases where he calls them a partridge and, and some other things that would take way too long and way too much of a Hebrew lesson. But it just suffice it to say that David is definitely mocking. This is WWE level of nanny, nanny, you stink. So David cries out to Saul and says, Saul, I saved you. You wanted me to die. You have pursued me. I could have killed you, but I didn't. I've got your stuff. I've obeyed God. And Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you this harm. Because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here's the spear. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. Which David had just seen with Abner. I mean, with David had just seen with the situation with Abigail and with Abigail's husband. That God took care of the problem. So he knew that God would take care of the problem. David says, Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulations. And then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Now normally when I'm storying, I don't like to fast forward. But this is one of those stories that we all know how it ends. We know that Saul, because we can read the rest of the story, actually keeps his word here. He doesn't try to kill David anymore. We know that Saul is eventually killed and that God took care of the situation. In fact, it's not too very long after this. But what would have happened if David had killed Saul? David would have had that hanging over his head that he was an usurper. It would have empowered anybody that decided that they wanted to kill David when he was king to say, well, that's what David did. It would have undermined and destroyed his entire time that he was king. Again, we see here that God didn't need David's help. 
And that David, by obeying God's word, ultimately protected himself. We as Christians, we as people who say that we follow a father, that we follow a God, he has chosen to reveal himself to us through this book. Not not this book, this book. And there may be somebody in here who said, you know what, I'm not living my life in the light of this book. I'm not reading this book. Please take today to draw a line in the sand and say, I'm going to do what I know to do. I'm going to spend my time in God's Word. There may be people in this room who don't know Christ, that you've never called on the name of the Lord to be saved. I have no doubt that that's true. You know, I've said it before that uh, Billy Graham said, the hardest mission field in the world is in the pew of a Baptist church. And if God is tugging on your heart this morning that you need to get saved, I would love nothing more than this morning to take some time and show you how to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. And there may be someone here that's looking for a church home. And if you are, I would love for you to join with us as we get in the fight. As we are about serving our king. We need your help. There are people in this church that need something that you have to offer. Father God, as we come to this time of invitation, Lord, I pray that you would convict and draw, that you would apply this text to our hearts. Lord, that we would see how you are faithful. How in the storms and in the terrible times that David's going through, you were faithful. God, help us to remember that. Help us to lean hard on you and your word. God, I pray if there's anybody in this room that doesn't know you, that's never been saved, that's never been redeemed, or that today would be the day that they call on your name. Lord, if there's any believers in here who aren't walking the way they should walk, they aren't following the precepts laid down in your word, God, that they would confess and turn. Lord, if there's anybody here who just needs to, to, as David does in Psalm 54, cry out to you, save me, O God. God, I pray that this morning they would cry out to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.